We come this morning to the only destructive miracle ever done by Jesus in the Gospels. And in relationship to this miracle, some commentators have have struggled. This miracle done by Jesus doesn't fit the Jesus they want to know or perhaps even believe in. And so some try to explain it away as not being real or something that Jesus would have never, ever done. Klausner, for instance, calls this miracle a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. Manson comments, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill-tempered person. While some commentators struggle with this miracle from Jesus, I think as we come to study this text here and its positioning, we can make sense of why Jesus does what he does here. And as we look at this text as a whole, I believe we even come to appreciate what Jesus does for his disciples. So this brings us to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. And please turn there with me in your copy of the scriptures as I read our text this morning. Mark 11, 12 through 25. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from their roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. As we come back to Jesus here this morning, we remember that he was just greeted the day before as the King and Messiah of Jerusalem. But then we ended last week on a very anticlimactic note. Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around, and then he goes home to Bethany because it was late. And that's it. And we were left with a 
bunch of questions. Like, what did Jesus see in the temple that night? And what was going through his mind? Well, today, Jesus expresses his thoughts on these very matters. But before he gets back to the temple and expresses this, we're first told an interesting story. One, as I mentioned before, that commentators struggle with, some of them. Jesus is hungry, and so seeing a fig tree with leaves in the distance, he goes out to it to see if there's anything on it at all to eat. But when he comes to this tree, he finds only leaves, no figs at all. And then notice what Mark says right here. For it was not the season of figs. So finding nothing on this fig tree, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he does this intentionally so his disciples can even hear him making this pronouncement. Now I wonder what you make of this scene, Jesus cursing a fig tree, a tree that's not even in season. Like, really? Why? Why is Jesus pronouncing judgment on this fig tree for not having fruit? Maybe like some, as we've mentioned, you're given the initial impression that Jesus is just frustrated. He's just angry. And in this momentary outburst of anger, pronounces judgment on the tree. But I think that would give us a a wrong perception of Jesus. A Jesus who acts on emotion without thought or care for life. And as we've seen his life all the way up to this point, we know that's not him at all. Rather, I think we need to recognize, as we've done all along going through Mark, that everything Jesus does is intentional. It's purposeful. There is no accident when it comes to what Jesus says or does. And so even here, we remember that. We remember even as we did last week that when something is strange, we study and we investigate it further. Last week, Jesus had a colt that he rode into Jerusalem for the last two miles of his trip. And we remember thinking, why would Jesus do this? But then as we study the Old Testament context, it shed light on the fact that Jesus was proclaiming himself Messiah of Israel. And so even here, as we think about why Jesus would pronounce judgment on this fig tree, we believe that he did so purposefully and intentionally because that's who Jesus is. He's very intentional. So why? Why does Jesus do this? And I think it's because Jesus wants this illustration to serve for the event that's about to happen in the next verses. This destructive miracle, the only one recorded in the Gospels, is to display a living picture of Jesus's judgment on the fruitless temple of Israel. It's all show, no fruit. And we're supposed to see this picture here and understand its connection to the temple in the following verses. Now, I believe this for at least two reasons. This isn't just my conjecture. I think Mark specifically mentions that it was not the season of figs because we're supposed to pick up on that Jesus is doing something else here. Jesus, being a Jewish man, would have known when the season of figs were. He would have known this. 
So I think this clues us into the reality that Jesus is doing something bigger here. He's giving us a picture. We're supposed to realize it's not really about finding food as much as it is about showing a picture of what's to come on the temple. And then secondly, Mark, I think, intentionally sandwiches a story within a story so that we would see this even more clearly. So we have this account of the fig tree here in verses 12 through 14. Then we have the story of the temple. And then coming back to verses 20 and 21, we pick up on the fig tree. And whenever Mark sandwiches a story within another one, he wants us to draw a connection between the two. Here, he wants us to relate the cursing of the fig tree with the cursing of the temple that he's about to do. And notice the similarities. Which is why, immediately after finding no fruit on this tree and pronouncing judgment, Jesus goes straight into the temple with his disciples and with the greatest display of zeal and passion that we've ever seen Jesus in, Jesus as Messiah begins to flip over tables. He begins to throw out those who were buying and selling animals. And he even stops people from crossing the courtyard with goods. What Jesus does here would have been no small feat. This would have been a massive undertaking and required immense bravery unknown to man. In order for us to properly really picture what Jesus is doing here, we have to know something about the temple that the people were worshiping in, the temple that Jesus was disrupting. This temple was built by King Herod and was still under construction. But at the time, this temple would have been one of the most beautiful, one of the most glorious places on all of earth from anyone's perspective, not just Israel's. It was spectacular. It was massive. The court of the Gentiles, where Jesus was driving these people out, alone measured 500 yards long and 325 yards wide, 35 acres. Uh, modern comparison, like five football fields long by three football fields wide. The area was just huge. And so we find Jesus coming in during the most busy part of the day, crowded with thousands upon thousands of people, and he just begins driving people out, throwing them out. And now we probably have a couple questions here, no doubt. First, why were people buying and selling animals in the Gentile courtyard? And, and like, why did Jesus stop people from like, carrying goods through it? Like, what's the big deal? Why does Jesus care? To answer the first question, people bought and sold animals near the temple because it helped those who traveled very long distances for Passover. I mean, thousands of people were traveling during this time, hauling animals to sacrifice them. So rather than try to haul your calf, your, your sheep, or whatever you have to sacrifice, you could just purchase it right at the temple. Travel hundreds of miles without the headache of trying to keep your animal on, on a short leash or what have you. Now, originally, these animals, which were being sold for sacrifice, were sold on Mount 
of Olives, the Mount of Olives, right outside of Jerusalem. But around AD 30, the high priest Caiaphas began to allow the selling of animals in the precinct of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. They allowed these merchants to come in, and they probably did this to receive a share of the profit or to perhaps control the procedures. And this is significant because the court of the Gentiles was the only place that the Gentiles could worship Israel's God. This was as close as they could get to worshiping the one true God. And here we begin to have numerous cattle, numerous market transactions happening in the only place where the Gentiles could worship. And then to add to this, the courtyard was being used as a shortcut by people to get from one side of the city to the other. Rather than going around the temple, they just go right through the court of the Gentiles, further adding busyness and noise to what the Gentiles were doing. So we find that this court, which is supposed to be a place of worship for Gentiles, is suddenly being transformed into a marketplace, busy with traffic and animal noises of all sorts. But Jesus puts an end to it in this moment. He stops these market transactions and those who are cutting through. Why? Why does he care so much that he would drive people out? Why is it he acts so passionately and zealously? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us in verse 17. He doesn't leave it to our guessing. He says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages for us explaining his actions, why he's doing what he's doing. And the first is found in Isaiah 56, 7. And here God promises that his temple and house of worship will be a place of prayer for all nations. All nations. This is what God promises. And with this promise in mind, Israel was to be a light to all nations. They were to be inclusive of Gentiles rather than exclusive. And unfortunately, when we come on this scene here, that, that's not the case at all. We find the exact opposite. The Jews, by their very actions, were exclusive. They had the special rights and privileges to God, not the Gentiles. And so rather than Israel acting as a light to all nations, we see them actually being a hindrance to those who would worship the one true God by allowing these market transactions and this shortcut across the only place where they could worship. And this angers Jesus greatly. Jesus then quotes a second passage here which sheds further light on the situation. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. The temple has become a den of thieves. In other words, it's become a safe haven for those who would commit evil acts. And in quoting this passage, Jesus is accusing them of committing sins of their former ancestors. And we really begin to see this correlation as we read Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, verses 3 through 11. 
this passage tells us this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? And then here's where he quotes it. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. So Jeremiah, in his condemning of Israel calls for repentance from sin and faith in God. He calls them to turn from their sin rather than looking to the temple as a place of refuge from God's judgment and wrath. For if they continue in sin, God will not accept their false sacrifices. The people of Israel thought, I can live however I want to live so long as I offer sacrifices to God and appease him. But they missed the point completely. What God wanted is not mere sacrifice, but repentance from sin, churning from sin with faith in God. He wanted their heart devotion above all, and without that, sacrifice meant nothing. So as we come back to this scene where Jesus is, we find similar things taking place. Israel thinks it can find refuge in their sacrificial system while simultaneously living in ways that God does not condone. And this couldn't be farther from the truth. As they prevent Gentiles from worshiping by their exclusivism and rob even the poorest among them, as we'll see in the coming chapters, we'll see a widow robbed of everything she has by this corrupt system. And so we find that Jesus is doing away with it all completely. He's condemning and judging this temple for which it stands. He is passionately driving out those who are buying and selling and overturning tables in broad daylight. And this is all calculated. This is all planned and all premeditated. And in all of this, we really learn what Jesus cares about we first learn that he cares deeply about the glory of God among the nations. He cares deeply about this. He wants Gentiles to be able to come and worship the one true God of Israel. And so we see him advocating on their behalf so that they too might have space to worship the one true God. And I think this should be incredibly encouraging to us even here this morning. As Gentiles ourselves, we were once excluded from the promises of God. 
but yet God saw fit to draw us near to himself through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And in his holy, righteous anger, he burns against those who would exclude them or push them out. So as we see the heart of Jesus, even here in our text, I wonder if, like him, are we jealous for the name of God, the glory of God from others? We should desire passionately, even as Jesus did, that all would come to know him as Savior and Lord. But often I fear that we hoard the message of the gospel to ourselves. Out of fear, or perhaps even worse, we we inhibit people coming to the one true God from our lack of love or zeal for God. As we see Jesus' heart for all people, I think it's clear that we should be moved to love others in the same sacrificial and, and costly ways. He would die to make possible the salvation of all, even these Gentiles here. And he asks for his disciples to have the exact same mentality. Second, we learn that Jesus desires our lives to be under the complete rule of God. We learn that God doesn't just want merely sacrifice or ritualistic practice. He doesn't want just control of your Sunday morning, but he wants control over each and every moment of your life, every breath, every second, every action that you take. And in the following chapter, we'll find one scribe that seems to get this right, as he says, to love God with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus says to him, you are not far away from the kingdom of God. So as we see what Jesus clearly desires and wants here, know that he wants your allegiance above all. He wants your love above all. He wants heart obedience fully and completely in every aspect of our life. For if he is truly king overall, as he claims to be, we must submit to him as his subjects. And in so doing, we find great joy in the one who satisfies our soul. Now, as we make our way back to this account, we find that not everyone is amazed by Jesus. The crowds were, but the chief priests and the scribes were told that they're looking for a way to kill Jesus. They're afraid of him. They're terrified of him because the people were astonished by his teaching. Make no mistake, Jesus wouldn't be killed because he's weak. He would be killed because he was powerful, strong, and brave. The people were captivated by his teaching and acts, and so the chief priests and the scribes are now looking more than ever to kill him, to murder him out of fear. Fear of losing their power and authority to Jesus, the Messiah. And so because of these dangers now in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples make their way back to Bethany. They're staying outside of the city due to these dangers to avoid the murderous plots of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now as they come back the next morning, they begin to head back to Jerusalem from Bethany. 
And it's at this point that we pick up on the fig tree story that we began with. And as they pass by the fig tree that Jesus pronounced judgment on, we're told that it's withered. It's withered from the root up. In other words, it was dead. And so Peter notices, and he says, look, Rabbi, look, (laughs) that fig tree you cursed, look, it's dead, it's withered. And it's at this point that we are meant to connect what just happened with this fig tree to the temple. Jesus has just condemned the fig tree for having the appearance of fruit, but being fruitless. And so Jesus condemns the temple for the appearance of having much fruitfulness, but in reality, having none at all. And so just as we see the end result of this tree, so it will be the same for the temple. Jesus has just declared its end. It's been tried and been found wanting. Jesus is establishing something new and far better. He is establishing himself as the primary means of communing with God. And he's making null and void the temple as the means to get to God. And even with Christ's eventual death, we will see the curtain veil torn in two from top to bottom, once more showing us that Jesus is the new way to God. So it is through Jesus and not the temple that people will commune with God in the coming days. And so we should look at Jesus' act here then of the clearing out of the temple, not really as a cleansing, but an enactment of final judgment. Jesus is clearing the way for something new. And it's in these days that Jesus tells the disciples what is most important is having faith in God. Look to him during these days when the temple is gone and shriveled up. He will provide an alternate route into his presence. Jesus Christ himself will be the new temple, a better temple. And it's in these days that will be most important our faith, prayer, and forgiveness. This is what will matter in that time. And Jesus will be the center of it all as the new temple. So as we close out this account, this is what Jesus addresses. These three important matters. So in response to Peter's noticing of the fig tree, he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Look to him. Believe that he will accomplish his will and purposes. And then he follows it up by focusing on the importance of prayer. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, there are a couple of things to note here when looking at these verses. First, many commentators have noted that this mountain that he's probably looking at in this, mo- in this moment is most likely in reference to the temple, the temple mount itself. 
The Jews believed that the temple would be established on top of the mountain, according to Micah chapter 4, verse 1. But contrary to this belief, Jesus may be saying, this is actually all coming down. It's going straight into the sea. It's being destroyed and eliminated. And so when Jesus speaks of this, I believe he's referencing the temple. Now, he says, with unstated qualifications, whatever you ask. And we must realize that everything we ask must be in relationship to the will of God. And this is what all the people who heard Jesus would have known already. You must ask things according to the will of God. You must not ask for things for selfish purposes or selfish gain, even as we read in our New Testament reading this morning. And even Jesus will demonstrate this reality in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, and he prays, and he prays, asking for deliverance from the cup of wrath that is to come upon him. He prayed hard that he might avoid the coming crucifixion and humiliation. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he teaches his disciples to pray in the same way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we look at these verses here, we understand them within this parameter of asking according to God's will. And then within this parameter, what we are supposed to gain more than anything from these verses on prayer is that God desires to hear from his children. He wants to hear from you. God inclines his ear towards us. He wants to hear our prayers and he works through our prayers for his glory and our good. It's a powerful tool in the hands of his people. He desires that we come in faith, believing that he is good and that he desires to do good things for his children. And yet so often, we fail to take advantage of this wonderful gift from God. So often we, we fail to come in faith, believing that he truly wants our good and that he truly uses our prayers for his glory and our good. And so Jesus calls us here to ask great things, wonderful things, according to the will of God for his glory and our good. And so Jesus tells us in that day when the temple is gone, what is important is that we have faith in his sovereignty, his power, and that we pray hard for God works through it. But then last, he calls us to forgive one another. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. In those last days, what will be crucial is that the disciples of Jesus learn to forgive even as they're forgiven by Jesus Christ. They must model that same forgiveness they received lest they fail to truly grasp the gospel and understand it. And when we realize together, even this morning, the infinite debt we have been forgiven by God, we forgive others who ask for it, even when it hurts and even when it's painful. And even when they don't ask for forgiveness, we release them into the hands of a God 
who judges justly. And so this is what Jesus' disciples are called to do when Jesus becomes the new temple, the better temple where all our sacrifices are now offered through. We look to Jesus in these last days and we abide in him by faith and we bear fruit by faith for he has become the center of everything rather than a physical temple. So even now as we continue in worship here this morning, let's look to him in faith as we come to observe the Lord's Supper and reflect further on his death and resurrection that made possible our communion with God.